This is the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss, brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation, your external learning and development partner. Each week, we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who are subject matter experts and are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our topic today is saying no to women's dead-end work. And we are joined by one of the authors of a fabulous book, The No Club, Putting a Stop to Women's Dead-End Work. And joining us today is Lisa Vesterlund. Lisa, you're very welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show. So I was reading this book and... You were talking about all your research that was going through and different conversations, how that happened. And it started over a $10 bottle of red wine. And straight away in my notes on the side of the book, it says, where did you get that $10 bottle of wine? I have to go to that restaurant. (laughs) Yeah, no. So it turns out that the wine is not as horrid as you might imagine, $10 a bottle. It's a little pub that's located between the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon University. And the authors of the book were coming from those two institutions. And we would meet there and buy these $10 bottles of wine. And the only reason why it's $10 is so that they can bring people in. So you can only get the wine for $10 if you also buy a meal. So it's more of a marketing ploy. So while it's not the best wine in the world, it's not quite as bad as you might imagine at $10 a bottle. So you all of you had prestigious jobs, I'm sure, very different challenges. You talked about your own challenges of hypertension and prioritizing family and different job offers. And we talk about your learnings at the end of the podcast. And also at the start of the book, you mentioned this is part of your legacy to MJ, who was part of that no club at the start. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that club and MJ? Yeah, so about 13 years ago, we formed what we initially named I Just Can't Say No Club. So we were five women. We were all overwhelmed by our jobs. As you said, we had all been quite successful in our careers, but we were working far too many hours and we really weren't feeling that we were moving ahead in our careers. We didn't feel like all the effort we were putting in was paying off. So we decided to start to meet. Initially, it was like every three weeks to talk about the work that we were doing. So it was sort of a very concerted effort to try to get our work lives under control. We would meet at this local bar over cheap wine and basically go around the table and say, what is it that you are working on? What are the things that you enjoy doing? What are the things you don't enjoy doing? And how do we get this under control? And as you mentioned, there are four authors of the book and MJ, a very successful attorney in Pittsburgh at the time was also part of the club. She was the fifth club member. And while we initially sort of started off having the club as a self-help group, we started thinking about what, why it was that we were so busy. We started thinking about research. We did a couple of studies. Regrettably, 
MJ got cancer early on in the no clubs path and very sadly passed away. But she had spent her whole career working with women, trying to make women become the best version of themselves in the workplace. And her passing really made us see, because we had sort of toyed with the idea that maybe we should write a book. And her passing really made it clear that we had to write a book to honor her legacy. And that's why we sort of really pushed ahead and uh, finished off a bunch of studies or still doing studies on this uh, and ultimately wrote this book. And that's what the podcast is all about, becoming the best version of yourself at work. And the book then, this is where I'm going to add the praise in. I, I want to state this is not about male bashing in any way. This is about understanding gender differences. And what I really liked about the book is it's really getting that understanding how women are treated differently at work. A big issue which we'll talk about in the podcast is identifying what's known as non-promotable tasks, and we'll expand on that later on. And again, what's really good about the book, there's ways of organizations can system, systemically address these issues. There's exercise at the end of each chapter. There's a playbook on how to say no. It helps readers navigate the workplace in a very constructive way, which I might add. And again, at the very end, people get introduced to how to set up their own club. Which exactly. with or what with or without wine, that's up to you. So <laughs> it's I, I think that's wine. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start off with this. So this is the whole notion I started getting really sucked into this book was what you said in the book is crappy tasks, these non-promotable tasks. So if our listeners are listening in, what might they be? What's what are non-promotable tasks? So initially we called these tasks crappy tasks because to us, they really seem crappy. They were, they're tasks that didn't help our careers move ahead. There were tasks that we didn't get a lot of recognition for when it got to our annual performance review. They never showed up anywhere. And we felt like we were carrying a very large load of these tasks. Um, we ultimately decided that crappy task was not an appropriate term because it is work that really helps out the organization that you're working for. So while it doesn't give you a lot of recognition, it's work that is very critical to the well-functioning of the organization. So examples could be something as simple as taking notes at a meeting. It could be sitting on internal committees. It could be resolving internal conflicts. It could be mentoring employees. It could be recruiting new interns to an organization or the sort of very famous office housework of organizing holiday parties, getting gift cards, et cetera. I think a really good example of this non-promotable task and how easily it goes under the radar in a study that was done by McKinsey and Lean In, where they spoke to 400 different organizations to try to figure out what is it that we want managers to be spending their time on? What do we see as critical for the managers to spend time on? And one of the things that showed up was that these 400 organizations, 90% of them thought that it was critical to have managers who checked in on the well-being of their employees. So is the workload right? Are they doing okay? So 90% of the organizations thought this was critical, but only 25% of them had any kind of recognition of the work. And not surprisingly, the same thing happened when it came to diversity, equity, and inclusion, these were efforts that were seen as critical to the organization, but it was not work that was receiving any recognition. So that's the space we're in. It's the space where it's work that is important, 
and the organization sees as important, but it is not work that gets a lot of recognition when it comes to your performance evaluation. And we will be moving to that, the organizational aspect to that. But what I want to go to first then is what are the, the costs then to women or what are the, the effects on women's lives and careers as a result of this non-promotable work or this extra workload? It's not that men and women should be doing the exact same thing at work. You know, mm. we have different preferences. We have different abilities. You know, sometimes we don't have different abilities. Sometimes we don't have different preferences. But there, there could be lots of reasons why men and women may not be doing the exact same job in the workplace. So just, and this, this is what we document in the book, is that indeed women across all professions are spending far more time on this non-promotable work. So, you know, we work with a professional services firm where we've got very careful data over how the men and women were spending their time. And it turned out that the women were spending 200 more hours per year on non-promotable tasks. So that's more than a month of work that they were spending on work that got no recognition. And any profession that we looked at, attorneys, consultants more broadly, women in academia, supermarket clerks, women working in the TSA line, architects, engineers, any profession we've found documents this very systematic pattern. But in order to understand what are the consequences of doing too much non-promotable work, it really depends on why women are doing more of this non-promotable work. Because if it's because of preferences or ability, it's harder to talk about, is this something that we should be, need to be intervening in? But what we show very clearly through a number of carefully designed studies is that a very large contributor to women doing more of this non-promotable work is that we all have this collective expectation that women are going to be doing the work. And because we all are expecting women to do it, it results in us asking them more often. It results in women feeling pressured to say yes, because they're going to get more negative responses if they say no. It also means that women are going to end up volunteering because they know that they will be perceived negatively if they don't say yes. So because we can show that expectations play such a profound role in this, we can say something about what this means, because it means that women, if they're doing more of the non-promotable work, are going to advance more slowly in the organization than what is in the interest of the organization. It means that we're going to end up with women who have the skills, who by mistake, and because we have these expectations, are put in task, but they don't become their best versions of themselves. So they advance more slowly, they get lower compensation, and it turns out one of the things that we keep talking about is that women don't negotiate. Well, lo and behold, it turns out that if you have more non-promotable tasks, you're not going to be successful when you try to negotiate because you're coming from a, a much worse vantage point. So it affects your compensation, it affects your, your advancement, but it also uh, takes a very serious toll on your job satisfaction because if you're trained to be an engineer, lo and behold, you would like to be working with engineering tasks. And uh, if you end up doing too many non-promotable tasks, you're not really getting to use the skills that you acquired when you went to college. I found this fascinating in all the different aspects that you went into, Lisa. And that part of the cost then, not only were they people could be staff turnover and staff retention a problem, but people could be even leaving the field, the sector, the workforce as well, as you point out in your book. 
And again, there's some people listening in is, but I can't say no because there might be a backlash. What would you say about that? Well, so that's exactly where one of the things we're hoping we're making clear in the book is that because expectations are driving this, this is really not a question of trying to somehow fix the women and get them to be like men. It is coming from our collective expectations, the expectations from men and women. It is a question of us changing how the organizations uh, respond. Because indeed, as you're saying, the feeling that you can't say no is a very real one. When we survey men and women to ask them, what are the thoughts that you uh, go through when you're trying to figure out whether or not you should take on an assignment? Men are inclined to report that they're thinking about what's in it for them. Women, when they're taking on these types of non-promotable assignments, are more likely to report that they feel guilt when they think about saying no, because they can't count on somebody else doing it, again, because it comes down to these collective expectations. But they're also very worried about the consequences of how they will be perceived. And then we can say, well, will they actually be perceived differently? And indeed, there is a beautiful study from 2015 by Heilman and Chen where they look at how we respond when a woman versus a man says no. And the the study had people read through different potential applicants that actually only looked at each person only looked at one applicant for a job. And one had just the description of the applicant. Another scenario had the description of the applicant and a story of the applicant declining a request to help. And the third had declining or accepting a request to help. And then they had to sort of assess who would you be more likely to hire? And of course, everybody is more likely to hire somebody who says yes to help than somebody who says no to help. But when they were evaluating a female candidate, it turns out that a female candidate who says yes to help is evaluated as being equivalent to a female who was not asked at all. So it shows that saying yes to help doesn't give you any benefit. Saying no is going to give you a negative treatment. And by contrast, when it comes to a man who says no is perceived as being equivalent to a man who wasn't asked at all. So men get bonus points for saying yes. If they organized a holiday party, people get very excited. You know, what a jolly good fellow. And when you have a female doing it, it's just expected. So this perception that we have different room to say no is a very real one. If we expect a yes from an individual and we get a no, we respond negatively without really understanding why we get so upset. And because it's this unconscious bias that we all have, where it seems right for women to take on these low-ranking non-promotable tasks, it really makes it challenging for women to try to fix this because They might be able to navigate better ways of saying no. They might be better able to navigate better ways of saying yes as well. But at the end of the day, they're working in organizations where we all expect them to take on these tasks. So it really, at the end of the day, precisely because we're talking about expectations driving this, making it clear to the organization that they're losing talent by distributing assignments based on our expectations rather than who's best at doing something. We don't want work to be allocated based on who's least reluctant to take it on. We want it to be allocated based on who's best at doing the assignment and making it clear to the organization. We can see now, I've been doing a panel study in Norway 
and you might say, why Norway? But Norway is one of the most gender equal societies that we have. And we can see uh, in those data that one year after graduation, or one year after graduation, the women are already doing more of the non-promotable tasks than their peers. So one year after you finish from the best business school in Norway, you are already stuck doing more of the non-promotable tasks. And from the firm's perspective, that doesn't seem like a good outcome. You know, at a minimum, you should give people a year to show what is it that you're good at so that I can make sure that I distribute the tasks accordingly. And I was very struck reading this. So I really identified with some aspects of this book by saying no, for example, that I, I feel guilty if I say no. If I say yes, then I feel exploited. The other side of the the coin then could be that sometimes that perception piece there is where men are seen as visionaries, where women, if they do all the logistics, get very little credit or recognition. And that perception then is really what has to be changed, isn't it? Yeah, but I think the challenge when we have biases and expectations like these is that it's hard to move those. So one person becoming aware of it isn't enough. Making an organization aware of it so that next time you sit at a meeting and somebody suggests that maybe Sue should be the one who's in charge of recruiting interns, that somebody says, wait a minute, Sue is always the one recruiting interns. Maybe we should have John do it this time. So It really, the only way you can change it is to change the collective perception so that things just don't taste right anymore, so that you pause. And sometimes the way you're going to get the change is to truly change the way that you're doing things, you know, put in place. Sometimes it's not enough to say, be careful not to fall over the edge. You have to put up a guardrail and say, we keep falling over the edge. We keep asking the same people to do these tasks. Let's make sure that we randomly assign it, that we take turns, that we keep track of how much time different people are spending. Maybe it doesn't need to be completely precise, but at least realizing that right now, none of us are paying attention to how we distribute the non-promotable task and just doing a little bit better, trying to keep track, at least making sure that when we hire new employees, that they all get the same shot at the promotable task is going to make a, a big difference. And at the end of the book, just before you have your references, you have a glossary. And one of the items on that is organization currency. And the organization currency, and I'll let you explain this, is really what is the organization value? So especially when women are saying no to something and saying yes to something or yes to something and saying no to something else, is what is the organization value? What provides advancement or progression? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so that's, we we try to think hard about what is it that characterizes non-promotable tasks. And on one hand, we're saying non-promotable tasks are important to the organization. And then it's like, well, why aren't we valuing them? And one of the reasons why we don't value them is that they're linked to the organizational currency, meaning the organization's objective. So if I'm a for-profit organization, I want to bring in revenue. What matters are client hours. What matters is the dollars that I get in. Now, there are lots of other tasks that indirectly contribute to that. So mentoring employees, resolving internal conflicts, sitting on, you know, all the internal work is like the grease that gets all the money into Mm -hmm. the organization. But if 
I'm sitting as a senior manager and I'm being measured on the dollars that come in. It's very easy to focus more on the employees that have lots of billable hours that are bringing lots of dollars in. So the organizational currency is what is it that we talk most about? What is it that we celebrate? What is it that keeps being emphasized in our annual reports? And in a for-profit organization, it's profit. So doing non-revenue generating tasks that don't directly contribute will often be non-promotable. So the, the three characteristics we have of non-promotable tasks is one, uh, that the work doesn't contribute directly to the organizational currency or to the organization's mission. Two, that it tends to be invisible work. So work that is done behind the scenes that you don't directly see. You may be the person who checks all the numbers in the final report before it gets submitted, but nobody knows that you're the one doing it. Or you may put a slide deck together, but not be the one who's actually presenting those are all invisible tasks that will tend to be non-promotable. And finally, the, the most detrimental for non-promotable task is that it is work that often doesn't require your specialized skills. So it is work that many other people could do. And if you were not doing it, somebody else would be doing it. And that means that you can't get as much credit for it as if you were doing a more specialized task. And it's not to say that everybody can do non-promotable work equally well, but they can do it well enough. And that's where it really comes in. Because if you are working on a promotable task, being really good at bringing money in is a rare specialized skill. And that will get a lot of reward, if not from your organization, then it will get a lot of reward from another organization. Doing a lot of the non-promotable work, you can be really good at it. But if someone else was doing it, they may not be doing it quite as well, but it's okay. So the, the non-promotable tasks, the performance on them mostly gets noticed if they go wrong. If they're okay, then we're very often fine with it. So it's those three characteristics, not contributing directly to the organization's mission, being invisible, and not requiring specialized skills that makes it challenging for this work to get the recognition that many people feel like, well, can't we just make it promotable? And we can't because it unfortunately has these characteristics. So then there's some wonderful stories that you have. For example, you talk about some people might be doing non-promotable work to get visibility of their skills. But when it comes to performance evaluations, then it goes maybe against them. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so let me first say everybody has to do some non-promotable tasks. So a sure way to lose your job is not to do any non-promotable tasks. Yeah. If you are never a team player, nobody wants to have you in the organization. Where it becomes challenging is that you just want to do enough of the non-promotable task. And what ends up happening is that oftentimes we'll say, you know, some of the non-promotable tasks or tasks that ultimately becomes non-promotable are initially promotable because they teach you new skills, they get you connected uh, to other people in the organization. So they give you paths for advancement that you didn't have before. But what happens is that you get stuck. So you may take on a committee assignment, you learn new skills, you get to know new people. But then three years later, you're still sitting on the same committee, still doing the same thing. It didn't add anything. So while initially it could be a path to advancement. If you get stuck doing the non-promotable task, it sort of 
really slows down your career. And it's precisely because we learn by doing, if you get really good at doing something, it's very easy for everyone else to say, oh, but you're so good at recruiting the interns. We have a story in the book about an attorney uh, who was put in charge of, of recruiting interns. And re regrettably, this is a common theme that we've heard in, in many cases where a young employee comes in and gets convinced that the non-promotable tasks that they're given, that somehow it is a unique ability that they are so good at recruiting interns, they have extroverted, this will be a path for advancement. And then when it actually comes to promotion, it turns out that all they care about is billable hours. So oftentimes non-promotable tasks come very well packaged in lots of compliments about why you are so fantastic and good at handling it. And if a task becomes very well packaged, it probably is a cause for pause to say, wait a minute, why do they have to compliment me so much before I take on this task? But where it's really regrettable at these young, so I've done a lot of interviews with these young new graduates and they're blindsided because we haven't told them about non-promotable tasks. So it's very easy to convince them that they're doing the right thing. Your boss asks you to do something. Of course, you're going to do what your boss tells you. And that's, again, where it really is up to the boss to say, is it in my interest to take a highly skilled new recruit and put them on a non-promotable task right away? And I'd like to think about it from someone's listening in here and they're going, they have complete rationale for doing non-promotable work because I'm a good organizational citizen. And this is at odds with where organizational currency is at. So while both are important, what I'm hearing is that men are sometimes tipping the balance towards their focus, towards that organization currency versus the non-promotable tasks, which they're doing that at the expense of maybe the social fabric. Because if people weren't doing that organization citizenship, the social fabric of the organization then would, would tear apart. And as you said, then there's many consequences to that. Yeah, no, exactly. So in, in terms of the organization's interest, it's not in the interest to have such a skewed distribution of work. And indeed, what has been exciting about the book is that we've worked with lots of organizations that are very eager uh, to change uh, because we just haven't been paying attention. And while I don't think there's any workplace where people would say, no, the men are the ones who are doing more of the office yeah. housework. Everybody knows that this is probably something that women are doing more of what they haven't been paying attention to is how many hours does it actually add up to? And indeed, the organization where the women were spending 200 more hours, that was not something they wanted. So it's not in the organization's interest to do this because they lose talent and because they end up with a lot of free writing happening, or you might call it strategic incompetence, because yeah. it becomes clear that you can benefit from not being able to do one of these non-promotable tasks well. So in my own department, I have male colleagues who are really good at writing papers, really good at teaching, really good at presenting, who really seem to have their lives under control. But when it comes to serving on an internal committee, somehow they can't find a room, they can't write a report, they can't take notes, they can't deliver on any of the tasks that they're given. And the response to that service disability is that they don't get those assignments anymore. So some people figure out that it pays off 
not to do a good job on the non-promotable tasks so that you don't get assigned that work anymore. So it allows you to focus your career on the more promotable work. So you end up with this unfortunate shirking. I think another case which actually happened in, it's also in the book, but was a morning when I had a doctor's appointment and I arrived late to the office and we have a big front lobby with lots of furniture in it. And I came in and that morning, all the furniture was gone. And I went to my male colleagues and asked if anybody had put in a call to ask why the furniture suddenly was gone, because clearly there was no reason for all the furniture to be gone. And several of my colleagues informed me that they hadn't noticed that all the furniture was gone. Now, that in itself is surprising, but it's also very convenient not to notice that the furniture was gone. And Others told me that they hadn't put in a call. They had noticed the, the furniture was gone, but they hadn't put in a call because it was not their job to look after the missing furniture in the front lobby. And surprisingly, it is nobody's job to look after missing furniture in the front lobby. And in any workplace that you're in, there will always be things that happen that isn't written into anybody's contract or is anybody's responsibility. And if you don't recognize when people step up to the task, you're going to end up with a situation like ours where ultimately, by the time I put in a call, the furniture had been sent off for destruction. So we had to buy all new furniture. So the furniture was meant to have been moved from the fifth floor. We're on the fourth floor. And as a, so it's just an indicator of what happens when you have a set of incentives in your workplace where it pays off not to step up to the task. So it's, it can be quite costly if you have employees who don't internalize the objectives of the organization. There are men listening in here now scratching their heads, knowing there's an inconvenient truth lurking out there. And you talked about strategic competence, and that reminded me of when I was younger. And well, let's call it, there was office housework, a job to be done. And I remember distinctly a male colleague stopped me from doing it. And I was like, why? It's because the women had handled it, I was told. And I says, no, I, I can do it. And I was looking at him, you know, if you tell him, he says, whatever you do, you're not going to do it right anyways. They'll come back and fix it for you or some, something like that. And I remember looking at this, lad, it, it, I was very young now at the stage of my career. And I remember catching sight of an, a woman out of the corner of my eye. Eyeballs rolled it to heaven, going to go and give me patience and I was very struck by that, how it's part of a culture. So I was nearly been indoctrinated into that way of thinking, which I found very strange. It was like, no, don't use your brain and don't use the hands you were given to do that work. So is there something that a company can do to highlight these inconvenient truths? I think brave companies first bring awareness to this problem. That's why we're been talking to so many companies. This mm. is why we wrote the book. A brave company talks about this evidence that women everywhere are doing more of the non-promotable work. A brave company tries to document for the least promotable work. Do we have a problem? Uh, I've spoken to 
a number of leaders in large organizations that say that, yes, they recognize that this is probably a, an issue in many other organizations, but they don't think it's one in theirs. Those companies should celebrate that and document it so that they can show everyone else how to do it. I haven't heard back from them to reveal whether or not that actually is the case. But then we should put in place what is nice about the non-promotable work is precisely that everybody can do it. Yeah. So put in place ways to change the way that we allocate, randomly assign the work. At my own institution, when we used to ask for a volunteer to take on a non-promotable task, we now put names in a hat and a draw name. And it seems silly, but it works. And nobody has to go through this round of saying that they're too busy so they can't take on the work. So change the way that you're allocating the work. Push back on managers to make them aware of what their responsibility is. In talking to managers, many of them report that they want the teams to figure out how they solve an assignment. Well, the way that's going to work out is that the women or the minorities, those who are least empowered, are going to do the least recognized work. And your white men are going to end up doing the most recognized work. So make it clear to managers that they have to keep track of who's doing what, that they can't just leave it up to the individuals and then begin to set some expectations for how much work should we be spending on the non-promotable work. It's not that everybody should be spending the same time on non-promotable work, but people who are at the same level, people who are peers in terms of advancement, training, they should be spending the same time on non-promotable work. And what was so disturbing about this data that we got from the professional services firm was that we were looking, the data I reported was for, that what we could see is for women and men who hadn't made partners was that men were spending more time on promotable work, women were spending more work time on non-promotable work. But once the women became partners, the women who succeeded in being partners were those who were spending the same time as on promotable work as their male peers, but we're doing more non-promotable work. So in order to be successful, you have to find a way of both delivering on the billable hours and the promotable work and on this side, carry this additional load of non-promotable work. So it's just not, if we think about how we want our daughters and sons to enter the labor market, I think we can all agree that it isn't reasonable that we start off our daughters in the workplace with a much higher expectation of doing work that we don't recognize. So I've moved my question from an inconvenient truth to something that male allies like me may be doing, and it's a blind spot, is this term that you introduce us to, benevolent sexism. What is that? So you think you're doing good, but you're actually doing harm. Is, is that my taking it? Yeah, so in, in some cases it is. So one of the examples of benevolent sexism that we have in, in the book is where we want the women to advance, so we send them on a training track that is very different from the training track that we send men on. So we give them what is effectively a lot of non-promotable assignments because we want them to advance. But nobody stops to ask themselves, what, why is it that the women need all this training and the men don't need all the training? So it, I think when, when you call it an inconvenient truth, it may appear as an inconvenient truth to some men. It turns out that there are also some men who end up being the super providers of non-promotable tasks. 
So what we can see in the studies that we've done, if you are in an organization that is predominantly male, there will be men in that group that are taking on almost all of the non-promotable tasks because there's a, a sub group of the other men who are never taking on the non-promotable tasks. So there will always be somebody doing it. And so when I'm talking to organizations where it's predominantly men and I will meet um, men who are saying, but I'm doing all this work. And it's like, well, <laughs> you know, there's always going to be somebody doing it. You're probably the one. You're the superwoman in your organization because there aren't women who are picking up the work in your organization. So it is an inconvenient truth to the ones who manage to shirk the non-promotable task. But it is a convenient truth. It should be both for those who are doing all the non-promotable work and to the organizations that employ them because they're really losing out on talent uh, by allowing everyone. It's not just management that's asking the women to do all this work. It's everyone else around them that is asking them to figure out how to file something. During the pandemic, I was working with a group of attorneys where, because everybody was moved, working remotely, one of the female attorneys became the one who converted everything to PDF files. And it's like how you could allow an attorney to do all of the other attorney's work in converting files to PDF is like unbelievable. But it's like you want to be a team player. Nobody else can figure out how to do it. So it, it, it shows up everywhere. And what I find so interesting in this work is that we have been looking at gender differences in advancement and compensation for a long time. And every time the statistics come out, we say, oh, look, the women are making less than the men. What is intriguing about this non-promotable work is that it contributes to all of these differences. And if we can just figure out a way of equalizing that, it will help fix some of the differences that we keep being so concerned about. But just looking at the gender gap and not having a way, you can't equalize pay after people are doing different jobs. You have to make sure that they're doing the same job to begin with. That's an excellent point. And speaking of, of that, let's entice the listeners now to actually the title of the book saying no. So you have a wonderful read. I love this. No means nourish yourself. I love that. What I want to do is that some people are listening in and say, listen, what are the, the steps to saying no and maybe what are the traps that I fall into I went in to say no and then I come out saying yes how did that happen what are the, the bits of advice you can give our, our listeners the no in the title is meant as much as a collective no as an individual no it, it really mm -hmm. is the reason why we keep pushing on organizations is that we really don't think this is a question of fixing the women but yeah. rather a question of fixing the organizations we don't mm -hmm. need more people who say no in organizations we need more people who are saying yes. So this is a case where we really need the men to start yeah. acting like women. That being said, there are steps that the individual can take. You know, we spent 13 years in our little no club trying to figure out how to get better at saying no. And being aware that there's an expectation that you say yes makes it somewhat easier to try to navigate because you have to be a, a bit slicker than you normally would. It's not just you know, certainly as a young employee, going in and saying no to an assignment is not the way that you're going to get any kind of advancement. But trying to think strategically about how do I get to the more promotable work? And the first step, of course, is that you become aware of what is the promotable work. 
what is the work that really is going to matter? What I find so challenging when we have these performance evaluations is that there are all these criteria, but then when you talk to management on what is it that matters for advancement, there is not all the criteria. It's yeah. okay if you're an okay colleague, you don't need to be a super colleague. So we have people chasing all these different criteria where not all of them matter the same. So getting a sense of what is the work that really will matter for my advancement. And the way to get that sense is in part to have a conversation with the management, not to say what is the non-promotable work, but rather to say, what is the work that you really want to see me having done well um, when you think about performance? So getting a sense of what is the promotable and non-promotable work, seeing if there's work that you're doing right now that you potentially can offload. So if your balance of promotable to non-promotable work is off, if you're doing spending more hours on the non-promotable work, seeing if there's somebody who would be a better fit. Is there a junior person for whom the work would be promotable that you could offload it to? It may be non-promotable for you. So what is promotable changes throughout your career, it changes with the job that you have, but there could very well be a junior person who could take on an assignment that is non-promotable for you and for whom it would help. So trying to get that balance into place and then Thinking about when is it that we end up saying, yes, one of the, the things you're saying is being caught off guard is, is one of the standard things. You get asked to take something on, everybody's in a rush. Sometimes it's easier just to say yes, but putting a pause on it, Linda Babcock, one of the co-authors of the book, has a 24-hour rule where she can say no right away, but if she's going to say yes, she has to wait 24 hours. So just pausing it so that you have time to think about what are the consequences of taking on this work. Another problem that I had uh, whenever I was asked to take something on was that I didn't think about what my implicit no was. I kept feeling that if I took something on, I could just be run a little bit faster and then I would get to it. And lo and behold, we only have 24 hours in the day. And if you take something on, you're implicitly saying no to that. And what is that thing you're saying no to? Is it spending time on more promotable work? Is it spending time on yourself? Is it spending time with your family? What is that implicit no? So we talk about a lot of the biases that sort of get you to say yes when you really would have wanted to say no. Another issue is sort of this diva moment. This is why the non-promotable tasks often come packaged in compliments because you get told by the person who are asking that you're fantastic and so good at doing it. So it becomes very easy uh, to say yes. So there's a whole slew of these sort of biases that get us to say yes when we really want to say no. And figuring out which one it is that is most triggering for you will cause you to recognize it and pause on the uh, saying yes. Now, thinking about saying no, being aware that there is this expectation that you're going to say yes means that you have to be a little bit cautious when you do say no. So the way we recommend saying no is to use what we call a strategic no, where you give a short explanation for why you have to say no. I, I would love to work on the colors of the new website, but I'm working with this new client that's bringing in a lot of revenue. And if I work on the colors of the new website, I'm not gonna be able to do that job well. So first give a very short explanation of what are the costs of you taking on this job, but then help the requester solve the problem because the requester just wants the problem solved. It's not necessarily that they want you to do it. They just want it solved. 
And because you know the organization from a different vantage point, you can point to someone else who could do the job. So think about alternative solutions, explain why you can't do it, but then help the request to solve it. And when you can't say no, thinking about how you say yes, so that you negotiate your yes, rather than just saying yes. So if you take on another non-promotable task, offload one of the non-promotable tasks that you want to get rid of. So say, okay, I will come up with the colors for the new website, provided that you can have somebody else do the holiday party or put a time limit on it saying, I'll be on the website committee for one year, but how about we, can we agree that John and Charles are going to be the two people following me? So you don't get stuck just because you get, so have an exit plan or try to divvy up the task so that you're only doing part of it and you have somebody else do other parts of it. And finally, I, I think a recommendation that is quite successful is to try to negotiate up instead so that the challenge with trying to say no or trying to negotiate your yes is the worry that you might be perceived as somebody who's leaning out of the organization rather than leaning in. But if you try to negotiate up and say, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're asking me to look at the colors for the website, but I was thinking that maybe I could contribute more if I was working on the new product development where I have this great insight. How about if I do that instead? So you're taking on a task that is actually more demanding, that is using your specialized skills, but is going to be more valuable to the organization. So this attempt to trying to negotiate up to steer towards the more promotable work can also be quite successful. Really insightful nuggets of wisdom there. Thank you very much. And this is where someone very close to me will say, and let me get back to you, or as someone very close to me says, leave it with me. <laughs> and that strategic piece comes in, isn't it? where you can have a real thought process there. This is where in you've a whole piece there in the book about saying no. So it's all that playbook there. There are emails in there. There's putting conditions on your essay, asking for additional resources, time limits, doing a B plus job versus an A plus job. There are so many recommendations for that. And Lisa, we are coming to the end of the podcast. If people were to contact you or to find more about your book or the work that you do, how might they do so? I think contacting me through, we have a website that's called thenoclub.com that has a little email folder that can be filled out uh, if anybody wants to get in touch or sending me an email directly to vester at pit.edu is the way to do it. But we're really passionate about changing the landscape. And there's, as I said, there've been lots of organizations that have been excited to take this on because they recognize that they're making mistakes, that they're uh, leaving money on the table by allowing everyone to give in to these expectations. So we can easily do better. Uh, we've seen in organizations that they are doing better. So getting people to talk about the non-promotable task, talk about how we distribute it so that we don't sort of blindside the young recruits that we have coming into the organization. Because what we're seeing in the most recent work that I'm doing now is once you're doing the non-promotable work, your manager will perceive you as being worse as doing all the work, even when that work is randomly assigned to you. So once you are on the path of doing more non-promotable work, it is very hard to come back. We really 
owed to ourselves and to the organizations and to the new employees to try to do better on the way that we distribute this work. Lisa, you've been so kind and generous with your time to do that. And hopefully lots of organizations will learn from your work. I could have easily done a two-hour episode with you. Thank you so much for coming on to the Workplace Podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss. Our special thanks to this episode's guest for sharing their expertise with us. If you found this episode valuable, please rate and review it. For updates on future episodes and to get in contact with us about any workplace topics, please follow Yellowwood on LinkedIn and Twitter at Different Paths. As always, you can head over to yellowwood.ie for any other information. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner provider of executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organisation.